This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong and I have a confession to make. I tuck myself up in bed at night with non-fiction books. I love any book that I believe will optimise my performance at work. So here at This Working Life, we started a book club just for work books. And today, it's the curiously titled The Courage to Be Disliked. This book has sold more than three and a half million copies in Asia. It's by a Japanese philosopher, Ichiro Kashimi, and writer Fumitaki Koga. And it's written in a question and answer form known as Socratic dialogue between a philosopher and a rather angry, rather lost young man. There's no value at all in the number of friends or acquaintances you have. And this is a subject that connects with the task of love. But what we should be thinking about is the distance and depth of the relationship. Will it be possible for me to make close friends? Of course it will. If you change, those around you will change too. They will have no choice but to change. Adlerian psychology is a psychology for changing oneself, not a psychology for changing others. Instead of waiting for others to change or waiting for the situation to change, you take the first step forward yourself. So why is this unusual book hit a nerve and what can we learn from it? To help us find out, I spoke to fellow book nerd and entrepreneur Catherine Robson, an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University, Patrick Stokes. The book explores the theories of Alfred Adler. But who was Adler and what was his theory? Patrick explains. You're not uh, alone in having to ask who Adler is because he's not a huge sort of name because he's, he's a 19th and 20th century Austrian psychotherapist. But, of course, there was another 19th and 20th century Austrian <laughs> psychotherapist, a guy called Freud. You might have heard of him. And Freud kind of tends to dominate a lot of these discussions, whereas Adler, who was a contemporary of, of Freud's, actually really didn't Were they like... mates? No. No, no they didn't. the opposite. They, they, they were colleagues for a very long time, and they did actually interact with each other a fair bit, but they had a falling out because Adler just kept sort of going his own way. And whereas Freud obviously had um, an enormous kind of school that continues to exist in his wake and has had exerted this enormous influence on... 20th century thought, not just in, in psychology, but also in philosophy in my area. Adler's been a far more marginal figure in many respects. He's still very big and he still exerts a lot of influence, but the influence is much more kind of unacknowledged and, and almost subterranean. Well, in many where respects. is the influence so, at all? Well, apparently, what I'm told, and again, I'm not a psychologist, I'll say that, but apparently a lot of his influence does percolate up through contemporary psychology and a lot of Adlerian concepts do kind of make their way into mainstream psychology. It's just people don't necessarily say, oh, and by the way, I'm an Adlerian. Right. And what did you think of the Socratic dialogue style of this book? I initially found it quite off-putting, to be honest, and I felt a little bit distance from the content when I started reading it because it had that sort of oversimplified tone. It is not the type of book I would normally pick up this type of narrative. No, but I did actually end up listening to it as an audio book and that did help actually because, you know, you had that performance element to it which made it easier to sort of follow. Freedom is being disliked by other people. Huh? What was that? It's that you were disliked by someone. It is proof that you are exercising your freedom and living in freedom and a sign that you are living in accordance with your own principles. But, but... It is certainly distressful to be disliked. If possible, one would like to live without being disliked by anyone. One wants to satisfy one's desire for recognition. 
but conducting oneself in such a way as to not be disliked by anyone is an extremely unfree way of living and is also impossible. There is a cost incurred when one wants to exercise one's freedom. And the cost of freedom in interpersonal relationships is that one is disliked by other people. The dialogue form is actually probably the oldest form of philosophical writing we have in the West and also in, in a lot of Asian thought too. So in, in Chinese thought, you get it in, in Confucius and Zhuangzi. In Western thought, you get it, or in Greek thought specifically, you get it in Socrates, who never left any writings. But what we know of him is in these stage dialogues that we get written by his pupil, Plato. So this is a very old kind of dialogue form. In some ways, it's the most natural way to write philosophy because it nicely stages the way philosophical inquiry works. But as professional philosophers, we never get to write like it because it just doesn't fit with academic So what did you think about this form? Look, I, I like the form, right? I it is a little artificial, right? There's no question. It's, it's, it's not how people naturally talk to each other, even philosophers. <laughs> and I actually didn't hate the book anywhere near as much as I was expecting to. What? You so. expected <laughs> to hate the book? Why is that? Oh, just, oh self-help. This is going <laughs> to be all trite and love yourself and all this sort of stuff. But actually, it was considerably better than I expected it to be. Surely so I'm you must have because it says the courage to be disliked. Yeah. Can we get onto that? The difference, I think, between the title, you might assume that it's walking around trying to irritate everyone, <laughs> make them angry. <laughs> it's like dislike, you know, but it's not really. It's obviously much more nuanced. So your reactions? Yes, and I think it sits quite separate to a whole lot of other books that have come out recently that sort of tell us what we already know. Don't sweat the small stuff. You don't have to please everyone all the time. It's okay if people don't always like you. I found the concepts in this much more nuanced, some of them much less counterintuitive or more challenging than I was expecting and, and much more depth to it. So, I felt like actually there's much more to it than the name would suggest. Have you got an example of that? Well, so there's a couple that I personally found really challenging. Let's go with the, one of the first principles then, which is the courage to be disliked is not about irritating everyone but not seeking other people's approval. Yes, and the difficult one for me was stop seeking recognition. So I think we think of ourselves if we want to be high performers, you set yourselves goals, you make a plan to get there, and then at the end there's some sort of recognition. There's an award that you win, there's a promotion that you achieve, there's a pay rise, there's something that makes it all worthwhile. And the philosophy in this book is the complete opposite to that. So I, I found that really quite challenging. Wishing so hard to be recognised will lead to a life of following expectations held by other people who want you to be this kind of person. In other words, you throw away who you really are and live other people's lives. And please remember this, if you are not living to satisfy other people's expectations, it follows that other people are not living to satisfy your expectations. So Patrick, mm. this principle of you don't need to seek other people's approval, where does that come from in this book in Adlerian sort of psychology? So it goes back to this idea that is actually in some ways I think very useful, which is just what, what they would in here call the separation of tasks. So basically working out what's your responsibility to work out and what's other people. And the point that he's making is roughly what other people think of you that's up to them to work out, which is, again, an idea that goes back a long way and you find it in other contexts too. Sartre says similar things. 
there's something useful about that. But again, it's also the case that in a work context, that runs up right against the whole infrastructure of how we set up the modern workplace and how we set up modern industries, right? So, I mean, even in, in academia, which you might think of as this very kind of, you know, laid back tweed jackets with leather elbow patches sort of you know, falling autumn leaves sort of environment. Um, even then, we're measured very, very closely on how much we produce and where we publish and how much we've published and what impact that will have on your workload for the next year in terms of how much teaching you do and what do the students think of you. Everything's metricized. Everything's built into these whole structures and economies of recognition. So, and even what are the implications Adler's, of that? Does that mean, well, even if Adler's right, yes, yes, it's really important to understand just how much of a, an opposing force that's up against, right? So it's it's easy enough to say, oh, well, just don't care what other people think of you and don't seek recognition. But you have to then play games which are built entirely around recognition as the currency of the realm, so to speak. Can I go to one of the examples then? So this is a boss who's been yelling at an employee in the book, right? Here's the example. And what um, the approach is, is to say, well, that's you know the boss's task to yell if they want to, but actually my task as the employee is not to use it as an excuse, not to say my work is difficult because the boss doesn't like me. Instead, you need to say, well, I'm actually using that as a goal. So the boss doesn't like me, therefore I'm not doing well at work. No, I need to ignore that. Now, what do you think of that, Catherine? Well, I do think there's something attractive in the workplace about trying to leave the past behind. And I quite liked the philosophy espoused here, which is the past is the past, you can't change it, but choose how you're going to respond and control your own responses. And in fact, in the business um, that, that I founded, we actually had a very clear philosophy of choose your attitude. So you can't control what life throws at you, but you can choose how you respond to it. And that has been really helpful, I think, in terms of particularly in investment markets, for example. You can't control whether investment markets go up or down or interest rates go up or down, but you can control both your actions, but also the attitude that you deploy and that helps the way you feel and then therefore your productiveness. And this is another one of the central principles. Patrick, can you explain all problems are interpersonal problems and to deny trauma? Yeah. So the deny trauma thing's interesting. That's kind of like uh, they say this quite explicitly in the book that's trying to do the opposite of what Freud was trying to do. So it, the distinction they set up in the book is between etiology and teleology, which are just big words meaning um, past causes and future goals, right? right? So the etiology is saying basically you are the way you are because of things that happened to you in the past and uh, they that cause like you to Freud. Act. That's Freud. Yes. And that's what's causing you to do certain things. Uh, whereas the Adlerian view is um, if you're acting in a certain way, work out what your goal is in doing that. Right. So, right. you know. An example? Well, so there's examples given here of, you know, for instance, um, there's an example of a woman who apparently has some sort of issue with blushing, which I thought was quite. Yes. Seemed a bit weird to me, but I don't know. Um, uh, she liked this man, but she didn't have the courage to approach him. And she said, it's because of my blushing, I can't. I just need to get that fixed and then I can approach him. And he said, well, the Adlerian view would be that actually you're using um, the blushing as an excuse because you're scared of rejection and so you don't want to um, make the move. Now, there's something true to that, but I think in some ways, in the same sort of way that you might say somebody like Freud overdraws the deterministic 
aspect, the idea that we are just unfree and we're controlled by our pasts. In the same way you might say Adlerian's getting a bit too existentialist <laughs> here. He's getting far too, no, you can just do whatever you want. You can completely change. That I think is actually troubling too. I think the truth is much more likely to be somewhere in the middle. More grey. One of the central principles of uh, the courage to be disliked is this idea that all problems are interpersonal problems. Patrick, can you help us unpack that one? Yeah, I found that a little um, confusing, to be honest with you, and, and unpersuasive. So the idea seems to be that ultimately all the problems you have in life are due to things like seeking recognition from others or worrying about what others think or, you know, interpreting your current condition in terms of the way other people treat you or limit you in some ways. Look, it's... It's kind of like if we were by ourselves in the world, mm. then we wouldn't have any problems. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> seems to be the, the the central idea. But, of course, if we were by ourselves in the world, we wouldn't really be anything. We wouldn't have language. We wouldn't have a sense of ourselves mm. as individual beings. It's, look, it's not entirely... No, actually, I think it is just wrong, actually. I'm sorry. I'm going I'm to do a rare thing there and say, no, I think that's just flatly wrong. Because? Um, because th- we have problems that aren't necessarily interpersonal problems. Illness is not an interpersonal problem necessarily. I mean, it has interpersonal dimensions, but it's not simply interpersonal. Yep. Catherine? Well, if I put a ring fence around work, I would almost go so far as to say any problems at work are interpersonal problems. Mm. Ah. And and I think when you talk to almost anyone who's senior in an organisation or in a leadership or management role, if you ask them what's the most challenging aspect of your work, they'll always say the people side of it. And so to that extent, I agree, maybe there are some things that are not about your relationship with other people, but being more focused on how you can better handle your relationships with other people at work, I think is a really valuable point. And I do love that point that you make, Catherine, because very often you think that having better uh, interpersonal skills are soft skills. You know how people say they're soft skills, and I don't really like the word soft skills because I actually think it's the most difficult thing, but it's the most powerful thing to work on. And actually you could do better at work if you do work on your interpersonal skills. You're listening to This Working Life on RN. I'm Lisa Leong, and with me for our very first book club, where I get to celebrate my work-related book nerdiness in all of its glory, is Patrick Stokes, Associate Professor of Philosophy from Deakin University, and entrepreneur, investor, and company director, Catherine Robson. The book is the blockbuster bestseller in Asia, The Courage to be Disliked, by Ichiro Kashimi and Fumataki Koga. So um, what's another principle that you thought was really powerful there, Patrick? I um, was pretty taken by the discussion about how we relate to the present moment, which mostly comes towards the end of the book. But I thought that was very interesting, this idea that um, there's an interesting metaphor that's used near the end about a theatre that's lit up. And when the lo- house lights are on in a theatre, you can see all the way to the end of the building, whereas if you're on stage and the uh, spotlight is on, you can't really see very far into the the audience at all. You can just see what's immediately in front of you. And uh, in the book, the the philosopher, who is clearly meant to be a stand-in for Kashimi, says, look, you know, this is how it should be in life. You should be focusing on the present moment and not, as you were just saying, worrying too much about the past and the future, not worrying too much about where you're going to go and and not worrying too much about um, where you've been and how that conditions where you are now. I, I think there's a useful corrective in that 
But I also think that the denial of self as a narrative thing, which he does there, he says we're not really these big narrative things that we think we are. I actually think we are that as well. I actually think we're both of those things. And the interesting question is how you relate those two perspectives. So in some ways there's a useful corrective there too, which I think is actually helpful. And a lot of the stuff in this book I think is strategically helpful. It's stuff that would be helpful. How would it help you? Well, I think very often just living in the moment is really important. I'm one of those people that does live in my head and lives far too often in the future and doesn't just sort of stop. So you think about what can I publish next? Yeah, exactly. And you don't just sort of stop and smell the roses. Um, And so there is something very valuable in that and we could all use that calling back to the present moment. But I think it's also true that we are also these these narrative beings that live stretched out across time. And I must say that throughout a, a lot of my working life, I was looking for approval and recognition and it is such a burden. And I know that when I start, so I just started a new organisation about two years ago and I just have one other person, so one business partner. And I was just thinking, oh, you know, so his name is Tristan. Why doesn't Tristan tell me how much he values my contribution like every day? And one day he did say, oh, you are a bottomless pit of, you know, me having to say nice things about you. And I said, yeah, I know. And I was thinking about it and thinking, you know, why is that? Because we're in business together. He obviously values my contribution. So, you know, why do I need that? And so after this book, I felt incredibly freed from that. And that's why I sort of thought, you know, if anything, yes, uh, the book, you know, goes a little bit too far and it's slightly irritating the way it's written. But I actually thought, you know what, if I could just take that away, it's just to slightly tone that down. The other thing that I found challenging for a work context but really valuable was that idea that you should seek out horizontal relationships rather than vertical relationships. Beautiful. So treat people wherever you are in life, but particularly in the workplace, um, as equals even though they're different. So they might not have the same experience as you or they might not have the same sort of education that you do, but they have something valuable to contribute. And in The Courage to Be Disliked, this book that we're reviewing, um, there's also this wonderful sense of um, saying that we're not climbing upstairs and trying to push people out of the way. We're actually all just taking one step in front Mm. of the other. So I quite like that level playing field. Yeah, I I did like the horizontal relationships point. I I was quite taken by There's actually an aside in there that says that they have to be all horizontal relationships and if you have any vertical relationships, that will infect the whole thing and flip that over. Um, it's what Aristotle called unity of the virtues, actually, this idea that you have to have all of them or you won't have any of them. I thought that was actually quite fascinating, this idea that just just one will ruin the whole thing. So I yeah. thought that was actually quite fascinating bleak. and very challenging, but uh, but a really good point, I thought. And how, how does that play out for you, this idea that if everything is horizontal, does that worry you at all? Or I think it's just really hard to do, but in my own life, increasingly, I see evidence that that it has benefits. So I'm a non-executive director of an organisation called Scale Investors, um, and it's about trying to drive early stage capital to female-led technology businesses. And mostly we have focused on members who are older, experienced, have capital to deploy. And then we realised we're missing out on all of the input that younger people have to bring who are more likely to use these technology products that give us a whole new perspective. And so I think when I read that in the book, I thought, well, actually, it's hard to do, but there's enormous benefits to see the world in that way. 
Yeah, I've been chanting equal but different, equal but different, you know. I love that. Yeah. I mean, academia too is like really quite hierarchical in many ways, even though we do interact, I think, in a very kind of horizontal way with even the very senior people. But particularly a lot of that goes out the window when, say, you're putting a book project together or you're putting a conference together and suddenly you've got to get the really senior people that are going to put bums on seats and that's when it, it you, you do suddenly realise that you are thinking in a very kind of hierarchical and even snobbish sort of way. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that this book has been so popular in Asia, which is predominantly hierarchical in nature. And some languages like Japanese and Korean, for example, actually have social stratification built into the language that you use. And there was a fascinating um, Malcolm Gladwell study on one of the Korean airline plane crashes, where basically the problem was that the co-pilot who was junior to the pilot didn't feel confident to challenge his superior. And one of the cultural changes that um, Korean Airlines made was to change the language in the cockpit to English. So you take away all that social stratification. So I do think it, it, it there's demonstrations that it works. And it's quite consistent with um, current thinking about leadership as well, where you do want to encourage people to speak up all people. And so if you have horizontal relationships or you have that attitude, I feel like that is helping people to do that. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's interesting too that in in that Asian context in particular too, Japanese thought in particular has been uh, really, really good and done interesting things in terms of taking uh, a lot of particularly European thought and then running it through a kind of Japanese cultural filter and philosophical filter, particularly a lot of North Asian Buddhism and other influences. And you get a really interesting and distinctive approach that comes out of that, which I thought is interesting. I mean, it's, it's worth stressing in this too that Kishimi says throughout, or the philosopher says throughout that he is giving <laughs> us a, uh, a, a, a he's, he's giving us Adler's thought, but they also kind of then admit later on too that in a sense really this is Kashimi Adler thought. This is actually kind of uh, Adler as interpreted through Kashimi oh, and, and Koga's in there too, of course, as this, this interlocutor figure. So um, it, 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 that's worth kind of pointing out too in a way. So I want to know, do you like the book what do you actually think? Would you recommend it to others? I would definitely recommend it to others. It's one of the few self-help books that I've read that I came away from it feeling, oh, there's things in there that I'll find really difficult to do. So often I think you read self-help books and lots of it is common sense and and it's really the challenge of you know implementing it in your life. This one I found extended some concepts that I either hadn't known before or had some incipient awareness of, but really this built on my knowledge. So for people who want to be higher performers but also be happy at the same time, I would definitely recommend the book. And what's the one practical thing that you would do differently as a result of the book? So the, the, the big takeout for me is separation of tasks. So one of my natural styles is to delegate work to people. And then if I don't feel like it's happening fast enough or the way I would like it to be, I reach back in and take it back. And it's incredibly disempowering for people that you work with. And so that would be something I feel like I now have a framework to say, what is my task? Well, my task is giving clarity to someone about what the expectations are and then letting them to deliver on it. And if they make a mistake, allowing them to learn from the consequences of that. Patrick, 
What did you think about the book? Yeah, look, I, I would recommend it. I, I think um, particularly I'd recommend it to anyone who thinks that they should be reading Stoicism as self-help. In some ways, I'd say this is probably a slightly better read than uh-huh. a lot of Stoic thought. Um, it's a useful book. There's a lot of really interesting and useful stuff in it. Separation of tasks for me too, I think, was the thing that, that stuck with me. And know, also me the point too, about, But actually. also the point about just, you know, being less hungry for recognition, I think, is is a valuable corrective. And to me, that's the thing. If Even if you don't buy into, and I, I don't buy into, the, the overall kind of philosophical framework of the book, there are some practically useful exhortations in there that are useful kind of just correctives for, for everyday life. And one practical thing that you might try differently? Uh, a lot more of the th- living in the moment stuff I think is probably useful. Uh, that, mm. that is stuff that hopefully would have a bit of an impact on me. And for me, uh, I think the one thing that I did do differently was this idea of not seeking recognition and approval, which, you know, of course stems from, as we said, from school where, you know, at the very start it's, you know, will you give me an A for this? <laughs> um, and, you know, so that conditioning, isn't it? I think it also starts in the home actually. So you know, both as a child, I think you seek your parents' approval, but then as a parent, um, you know, one of the, again, challenging things in the book was don't praise or rebuke even your children. So encourage, support, but don't set up a dynamic with your child where you are condescending to them. And I think if you can practice that at home, it then translates into the workplace. Thank you both, Catherine you. Robson and Patrick Stoke. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick Stokes, Associate Professor of Philosophy from Deakin University and Entrepreneur, Investor and Company Director, Catherine Robson. Our book was The Courage to be Disliked by Ichiro Kishimi and Fumataki Koga. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.